going to be in Amos 5 today. Amos 5. Yes, sir. Amos 5. Page 370. <laughs> See if we can lighten the mood a little bit. Everyone here familiar with Mr. Clean? Bald guy with the white eyebrows and white t-shirt standing with his arms crossed like he has just done a very good job of whatever he was doing. And for some reason, he has a gold loop earring in his left ear. I never really understood that part. Like, is he a pirate or maybe, maybe a genie? Is he a genie? Okay, so, so he's magically cleaning the house. All right. So he... My dad worked for Procter & Gamble. Uh, they're the company that puts out Mr. Clean, as, among other things. And so I grew up with all these products in the house, and Mr. Clean was one of them. Not to mention that I've been called Mr. Clean more than once in my life. Uh, all of us have some sort of house cleaning chemicals like that in our home, right? We need them for various reasons. Cleaning kitchen counters, mopping floors, disinfecting various parts of the restroom, I mean, it's just all these different uses. And in each case, the chemicals being used are powerful agents in terms of cleaning and disinfecting. They are created to be used for that very purpose, right? And to rid the home of unwanted germs and bacteria and other stuff that can cause serious problems. And this is a good thing. These chemicals are useful. But unfortunately, the same thing that makes them so useful in cleaning and disinfecting makes them extremely dangerous for humans if they get in our eyes or our nose or if we ingest them. Most adults know better than to drink household cleaners, uh, but in the early 70s, there was a campaign to keep children from ingesting them. And in 1971, the year I was born, uh, Dr. Richard Moriarty, a pediatrician and clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, who also founded the Pittsburgh Poison Center and the National Poison Center Network, he created a campaign called Mr. Yuck. Any of y'all remember Mr. Yuck? Nobody? Okay. Mr. Young was like, I, I knew all about it. It began at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and they issued these little round stickers with a, a sort of sickly green face on them and tongues sticking out like it was sick and throwing up. And the stickers would be put on these various chemicals around the house in order to warn children that they were dangerous. And they even had a jingle. And if you get a chance, go on YouTube and look up the Mr. Yuck jingle. Uh, but the part I remember specifically is, Mr. Yuck is mean. <laughs> Mr. Yuck is green. So it was very uh, ominous sounding and, and all that. And then they told all the ways it could make you sick. Uh, now you're probably wondering, okay, what does Mr. Clean and Mr. Yuck have to do with Israel and the message of the minor prophets, right? Uh, I think as we dig into our text this morning, it's going to become more clear, but here's the basic idea, just so we're all on the same page. 
Chemicals that do a lot of good can also be harmful or deadly if misused. And when that happens, what was meant for good can end up being bad. And this is what happened with Israel. God intended them for good. God made them into a nation so that they would be a blessing. And they were, in a way, meant to be like Mr. Clean. They were meant to be useful in making the world a better place to live. But as Amos revealed, they ended up being more like Mr. Yuck, causing serious damage and being toxic, poisonous presence in the world. So the Lord sent Amos, among others, to declare the day of the Lord. And that's been our series theme. And he wanted to warn them of judgment that would come, call them to repentance, and offer them mercy. These three things that keep showing up in all the minor prophets. And so, if you will, follow along with me this morning. We're going to read uh, all of Amos 5. I know that sounds like a lot, but it makes sense. We'll begin in verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth, Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, and you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them, and you've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he is prudent who will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. May be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares that shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning, and 
to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word. So Amos began this prophetic poem by declaring it a lamentation. In other words, God was in mourning. Like a parent who finds that their child has ingested a chemical meant for good and has become sick. The father was grieving Israel's situation. And in that grief, Amos said that the virgin Israel was fallen and forsaken. And this is a metaphor of courtship and marriage and the breaking of vows. In the Jewish culture, as in many others of that time, young women would be betrothed to young men. And in this betrothal, the soon-to-be wife would be expected to be a virgin. And in this sense, they would be expected to be pure and undefiled that they had not given themselves to any other man or spouse. And that was the language that was used. But in the larger metaphor, Amos was using it to mean Israel had not given itself to any other gods. That was the idea. Israel had been betrothed to Yahweh, and they would enter into a marriage with him. This was the way it was supposed to be. But Israel was not faithful. Israel betrayed the engagement and chased after other gods from the beginning. So Amos was saying the very idea of Israel as this pure and undefiled bride was gone, obliterated, forsaken and fallen, no more to rise. In verse 5, the Lord called for repentance and offered mercy, saying, seek me and live. We're going to circle back around to that in just a moment. But he also referred to Bethel and Gilgal as places they should not seek. But why? What do these places have to do with Israel's situation? Well, after Israel and Judah split into two kingdoms, Judah retained sole possession of Jerusalem and the temple. And this left the northern kingdom of Israel without a proper place of worship. So their king, Jeroboam, he established two temples in two different parts of his kingdom. One was at Bethel, and the other was in a place 
called Dan. And so what about Gilgal? What is that? Well, Gilgal was the name of a place, but that place was named Gilgal because of the Hebrew term, which means a circle of rocks, like a memorial or a place of worship, a holy spot. In other words, Gilgal could mean that place or really any place where an altar or a circle of rocks or that sort of thing was built for the sake of worship or memorial. It's as if the Lord was saying in this part, don't go to Bethel to worship or enter into any stone circles you may find. Return to me. That's the main idea here. And another reason is that when Jeroboam set up these alternate places of worship, he put a golden calf in each of them and then stamped it like a brand with the name Yahweh, as if the calf was Yahweh. And just like Aaron had sort of done with the people back in the wilderness of Sinai. And see, this was Amos reaching back into the Torah, as all the prophets do, and pointing to what happened there as a means of reminding Israel of their past and asking them whether they were any different in the present. We don't have any places like this though, right? Any places people make trips to in order to spend their time and money and offer their devotion. What about Las Vegas? Or Hollywood or Washington DC? Those are some of the big ones, right? I'm not saying everyone who lives there goes or goes there is evil. That's not my point. But what happens in those places? What are they all about? Wealth, fame, power, the way of the world. And I'm not saying there aren't those who might be called to such places for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Of course there are. I believe that's a reality just as we have been called here, to little known Marathon, to be light in the darkness in this place. So is that what we are doing? We may gather here on Sundays and sing and pray. We may even gather other times for Bible study or fellowship. But are we being light in this town? When people look at us that what they see. And I'm not asking if they think we are Christians or not, or if they think we believe certain things. I'm asking if our presence in their life makes it better, because that's consistently what we see with Jesus, and that's what Israel was supposed to be like. Which brings us back to Amos encouraging the people to seek the Lord and live. When Amos wrote this, he used two very specific words to relate this message. The first was darash, which means to seek after, to ask, to inquire. In other words, it's not really about looking like hide and seek with God. It's more about talking and pursuing that way, asking questions and being curious. And that brings up other questions. Are we curious about God? Are we talking to God? Asking questions of God? Are we bringing our wonder and concerns 
to the Lord or are we taking them somewhere else? Through Amos, the Lord was making it clear that he alone was the source for those things that we need. That when the people had questions or concerns or even grievances, the place to turn was not these other false gods who couldn't do anything about it. Yahweh wanted the people to turn to him. Not some golden calf, not some circle of stones, not a place, but a person. The Lord wanted a real and meaningful relationship with his bride, but Israel turned away. And we do too. Which is why Amos included the part about life. If Yahweh is the source of life and Israel turned away from Yahweh, What's the simple math there? The same is true for us because God is the source of our life as well. And the second word Amos used here bears this out. In Hebrew, the word is kara, or I'm sorry, kaya. It means to live, to be revived, to restore life. In other words, this is referring to the very source of life. And we could just as easily read this message from God as ask me anything you need and I will provide for you because I am the source. Or turn to me with all your concerns because I'm the only one who can take care of you. And isn't that what we read? In places like Psalm 37, 5, where it says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. Or Psalm 55, 22, where it says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Or even in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 5, 7, where we are encouraged to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Why would we look anywhere else? Why would we turn to any of these false gods and functional saviors when our creator who loves us and wants a real relationship with us to provide and care for us, why would we turn away from him? Is it selfishness? Pride? The need for control? The desire to make our own way and do things how we want? Is it because we thought we were the ones in control, but we have since been enslaved to those things? wealth or fame or power or whatever else or maybe it's not that obvious maybe we are chasing after these things in more subtle ways or maybe we are chasing other things in subtle ways putting on a pretense of being religious just enough to convince ourselves or others that we are really okay everything's fine as if worshiping a golden calf with Yahweh stamped on it makes it okay. Are we doing what we want and attaching the name of Jesus to it? Or are we doing things his way? Amos desperately wanted Israel to see that their way was leading to their own destruction. That turning away from life had only one result. And this still applies as well. 
If we turn away from the only source of life, we can't be surprised if what we find is death and destruction. I mean, look around the world. Has there ever been a time when humanity wasn't heavily engaged in some sort of death and destruction? And nearly all the way through, the church has been caught up in some way or another, right in the middle of it all, when we should have been calling for peace. Calling people to leave this old way behind and turn to the source of life. To seek the Lord and live. To be restored and revived and brought back to the life our maker intended for us. Life beyond measure. This is where Amos began to take aim at the way Israel had acted, declaring that Israel had turned justice into wormwood. That's a strong word. And that it means they made what should have been sweet into something bitter, something toxic, something poisonous. What should have been light was nothing but darkness. And as we consider this, what thoughts come to mind? What things in our culture are meant for good but have ended up being bad? And what about in the church? How have we turned justice into wormwood? And what have we gotten involved in that we should have left alone? How can we disentangle ourselves now so that we might still have a means of offering God's mercy to those around us without it being seen as cultural or political warfare? What can our little congregation do in our sphere of influence to bring justice instead of wormwood? What needs can we meet in this town to make life better for our community? In order to answer this question, we have to be involved in people's lives. We have to know what's going on by being trustworthy enough for people to tell us. And then we need to be trustworthy enough to do whatever we can to meet those needs. Because injustice, I'm sorry, because justice isn't just criminals getting put behind bars. It's not just Judge Judy making the right call in some domestic dispute. Justice is ultimately about shalom making the world as it should be. Of course, there's an element to that which is solely in God's realm of ability. We recognize that. But there's also the part we have been called to do. Whether that means bringing food to the hungry or clothes to the needy or visiting people in hospital or even those in jail, we have this calling as God's people to do everything in our power to make life better for those around us. So are we doing that? Are we bringing that kind of justice to our town? Are we so vital to this little community that people would notice if we weren't around? Israel got this wrong. And the whole book of Amos' prophecies are aimed at Israel for being blessed by God and being well off and yet not being a means of justice in any way. Instead, they were only concerned with themselves. They made that mistake over and 
and over, generation after generation. And yet, here we are thousands of years later, reading these stories, shaking our heads at them, and yet doing the same kinds of things, which is just ludicrous. We are interested in sacrificing ourselves and our wants and desires for the sake of bringing about this kind of justice in our town where the Lord has placed us, then why are we here? Are we just passing the time until the apocalypse? Leaning far too heavily on the idea that Jesus will show up and make everything right. Or that we won't have to worry about it because Jesus will show up and whisk us all away to some far off heaven. I'm not trying to be obnoxious, but these questions are important because I believe this congregation exists here in this place for a reason. Just as our statement of purpose hanging on the wall by the front door, the big plaque that we've got out there, just like it says, that we seek to live our lives in such a way that others might come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if we look at the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, what we find him consistently doing is meeting needs and bringing God's justice to bear in the world he encountered. And Israel failed miserably to bring God's justice into the world around them. And so... It was bad, it was so bad that they'd gone so far off course and chased after so many false gods and functional saviors that Amos felt like he needed to remind them of who God was. So in verse eight and nine, he gave a brief but pointed description, reaching back to the creation narrative in Genesis and referencing the creation of both the universe and the earth within it Amos declared the Lord is his name. In the Hebrew, this version is the name God told Moses on Mount Sinai. The name Israel would recognize as the Lord who brought them out of their slavery in Egypt and made the covenant with Moses and their ancestors. The name of the God who was and is and is to come. Yahweh, the great I Am. The word itself that meant life and existence and being, the creator of all things. This God, this one true God who had done all this was now calling Israel to repent and turn away from all the false gods and functional saviors and return to him. And receive the mercy he longed to shower over them. Only they would seek him and live. This offer is still on the table for us. However we have messed up and done wrong things and chased after false gods of our own design, given ourselves over to functional saviors that couldn't really save us, whatever we have done, there's hope. Because even though the warning of judgment Amos gave Israel wasn't for us, <coughs> pardon me, even though we aren't going to be carted off into exile in Assyria, the principle still holds true. If we will heed the warning of judgment and the call to repentance, we will receive God's mercy. It's 
It's not a complicated process. But we have to turn away from all the things we have entangled ourselves in that turn justice into wormwood. So what are some of those things? Well, Amos made a pretty specific list in verses 10 through 13. He said, uh, hating reproof, that just means correction, hating those who speak truth, trampling on the poor, in other words, benefiting from them without giving anything back, exacting taxes from the poor, building fancy houses and fancy vineyards, afflicting the righteous, taking bribes, and turning away from the needy. Interesting that Amos listed nine things because in Jewish thinking, Yamaha with numbers, right? The number nine signifies completion. For example, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, begins on the evening of the ninth day of Tishrei. And by absolutely no coincidence, Jesus died at the ninth hour. And Paul listed nine fruit of the Spirit. These aren't casual references. Each one is about completion. And in this prophetic poem, Amos used the number nine to refer to the fact that Israel had completely turned their backs on the Lord. It wasn't partial. By doing these things, they had totally rejected the way of the Lord for the ways of men, for their own ways. Ways that would inevitably lead to death and destruction. Which is why after a call to seek good and not evil, there came a warning of lamentation. In other words, the road they were on was leading to grief and sorrow. There would be nothing but heartache and sadness if they continued down that road. In verses 18 through 24, Amos warned Israel that if they were still steadily pursuing all their own wants and desires and living for themselves, when the day of the Lord arrived, things would not go well for them. It would not be what they expected at all. And then the Lord stepped in again to emphasize their dire situation. He said he hated and despised their feasts, took no delight in their solemn assemblies, would not accept their burnt offerings, would not accept their grain offerings, wouldn't even look at their peace offerings. The Lord said to take away the noise of their songs. He wouldn't even listen to their music, but wanted justice to roll down and righteousness to flow. And again, it's no coincidence that this is another list of nine things. This time stating both the Lord's displeasure with Israel's false worship as well as a call to turn it all completely around. In other words, even though Israel had completely rejected God's way for their own, there was still hope if they would just listen and repent. Even as their enemies assembled for war and ready to march against them, if they would repent, if they would turn away from those things and turn back to the Lord, the Lord would forgive them and defend them turn away their adversaries. He'd done it before. Too many times to count. He was still willing to do it again, even after everything they had done. 
He would still have saved them if they would have turned away from the path they had chosen. And again, we aren't in imminent danger from Assyrian conquest, but the principle here is still true for us. Whatever choices we have made or are making even now that lead us away from the way of Jesus and toward our own selfish desires, if we will turn around and turn toward him, he will forgive us and rescue us. And maybe you are sitting there this morning thinking, I'm just talking about people who have never given their lives to Jesus, but I'm not. They're welcome, just as all are welcome, but I'm talking about the church too. I'm talking to a room full of people who have probably been believers most, if not all, of your lives. And what I'm saying to myself and everyone else here is the same. We need Jesus. Amen. As much today as ever. We need to repent and confess just as much as anyone else. And I know I do. Because I regularly find myself headed back down the wrong road in some way or other, whether actively or passively as I turn away from God, chase after something else. And every week as I come in here for worship on Sunday morning, I think about all the ways I have messed up during the week and how I can either repent and confess and give myself back to the Lord for his purpose, or I can cover it up and lie. I can come in here and act like a good person, act like I am an upstanding citizen who lives right and obeys the law and contributes to society and all the things. I can put on a mask and pretend I am living as God intended and I can sing hymns and worship songs and pray and preach and fellowship and fool everyone, even myself, but not God. So every week I stop, I take inventory of my days, and I admit how I've made a mess of things in my heart, if not in my life, with my family or other people. I acknowledge that I've turned my back on Jesus and on the way of his kingdom, and I surrender. Like the old hymn goes, I, I surrender all. Some, not half, not even most. That's not how this goes. We all know the lyrics. It's I surrender all. And if we aren't willing to do that, then again, why are we even here? The Lord made it clear that He's not interested in worship that is not genuine, He's interested in justice and righteousness in us living as we have been called to live outside these walls. And that doesn't mean we can't make mistakes, but we have to be willing to confess and repent and come back to the foot of the throne and surrender all to Jesus, just like anyone else. The alternative is what we see in the final three verses, 25 through 27. Reaching back to the story of the Exodus as a reminder, the Lord offers this final warning that if the people refuse to listen and repent, they will be taken away into exile and captivity and slavery, slavery right along with their helpless little hand-carved gods. But the day of the Lord will come 
and all their play acting will be unraveled, and all their pretense will be shown for what it is, and their complete rejection of the Lord and life he offers will be revealed. They will find only death and destruction, which is exactly what happened to both Israel and eventually to Judah. But even as this prophetic poem ends on this sort of sour note, the hope of repentance and mercy echo through it. If only we will seek the Lord and live. It's just as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7 through 9. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks will be opened. There is hope. We haven't wandered so far off that the Lord can't rescue us. But we absolutely must deal with our idols and all the reasons that we turn to them instead of the Lord. We need to open up the door and let the Holy Spirit come into us like Mr. Clean, scrubbing and cleansing us from the inside out. And we need to slap a Mr. Yuck sticker on all those thoughts and actions that lead away from Jesus and the path that he has set before us. We need to seek the Lord and live.